Transport. We fly from Adelaide to the heights of UK and working across all forms of motorsport. I hope you can stay with us. This week, Cameron Kelleher discusses how he gained a love for motorsport growing up in Adelaide and heading out to the Speedway. Where did that passion for motorsport start? Now, Adelaide, you automatically think of a kid that's grown up watching the Grand Prix in their home city. Yeah, um, it probably started before that, just like I said before, um, visits to Rowley Park with my dad on a Friday night. I had a couple of heroes. Um, I had, you know, obviously uh, Johnny Bolger was a huge, uh, huge hero of mine. And there was a guy called Bill Wigsell who ran in a um, super modified. The car was called Suddenly 88. And then there was, George, you know, people like George Tatnell and others as, as I went through. So I guess that was my first taste. And then I had a next door neighbor who had had a friend whose name was John McCormack, who was a Formula 5000 racer. He drove an Elfin uh, MR8 in those days. So I was lucky enough to be able to go to the factory and watch, watch um, them put the car together. And then I'd go to uh, Malala, as it was in Adelaide, and watch, um, watch some circuit racing. So it's always been in my blood. And I used to devour copies of Autosport magazine and various other uh, motorsport magazines that I could get my hands on. So yeah, it's always been a, a fascination. I think I was fascinated by the speed and the sound and the fury of, of, of motorsport and the daring of, of the drivers uh, from a very early age. Um, I was a terrible driver starting out, but which, which again, Jackie would have testified to because I got him um, spectacularly lost in, um, in Imola one race weekend. So I guess I've never lived that down. I guess you mentioned one, well, which I... I have great memories of Raleigh Park Speedway in Adelaide. I, I can remember going there, Cameron, in January 1968 for a round of the Craven Fielder National Speedcar Drivers' Championship, and you couldn't get another person into the brick pit, as it was effectively <laughs> known. But you've mentioned some very iconic and very colourful and great Australian Speedway competitors, John Bolger, of course, um, Bill Wigsall, and George Tatnell. Where did that put you a think? I've got to get involved in some way down the track in motorsport. What was that impression? What impressed you the most with a night at Rowley Park Speedway? I think it was the bravery and the daring, particularly of the riders. And I, I, you know, I remember going there as a kid and I couldn't quite get my head around how um, these guys could have so much control of a bike that was going sideways around dirt you know, at uh, ridiculous speeds. Or the, in the case of supercars or speed, uh, sorry, super modifieds or speed cars, the the fact that these guys were going wheel to wheel, and you know, the, obviously there was the occasional incident, but I think it was just like, I want to get in the inside the head of these guys and understand what's going through their minds when they're dicing wheel to wheel and when they're um, putting their lives on the line and when you know when they're going sideways at ridiculous speeds you know, what drives them. And I, and I guess it kind of sparked a, a kind of journalistic trait in me as well because I thought, you know, I want to I want to be able to understand in the first instance what's going through these guys' minds. But secondly, I want to try and um, tell that story if I can. Um, so that's kind of where my journalistic instincts kicked in very early as well because I was able to go and interview some of these guys and ask those questions. You know, it was interesting when, uh, when you talk about, drivers you know much later in my career 
I would, I was working with a guy called um, Eddie Irvine, who you probably know as a fairly um, outspoken, charismatic Irishman. But actually, the the Eddie that people don't know is the Eddie that gets in his office and puts his helmet on and goes to work. And you you hear him on the headphones, which I used to listen into. Obviously, he's a very different animal to what you see in the paddock with you know Miss Germany draped on his arm, or sat in a bar in Montreal till 3 a.m. Uh, on the on the night before a night before a race. You know, so I, I wanted to be able to tell um, stories about the other side of Eddie Irvine. Or there was an instance where he, you know, Eddie was in the Jaguar days, early Jaguar days, Eddie was on one side of the garage and Johnny Herbert, you know, the, the, the archetypal British cheerful chappy was on the other side. And Johnny would walk into the garage and every and go around every single mechanic, shake their hands, tap them on the on the shoulder, talk about their wives and their kids and whatever else. And when it came to pit stops, there was a marked difference in reaction time and and the speed of service that Johnny got as opposed to Eddie got. Because Eddie used to walk into the garage because he he was outwardly he's quite shy, and he'd walk into the garage and he'd go to the back of the the cabinet and he'd put his balaclava on, put his helmet on, jump in the car. He would have no contact at all with any drivers, uh, sorry, any mechanics. And I kind of got him in the corner one night and said to him, you know what, it would be in your interest if you went into the garage in the morning, instead of going straight to the back, putting your balaclava on, putting your helmet on, jumping in the cockpit and shunning those guys, if you actually went and made an effort to talk to them, shake their hands, show an interest, I'm sure you'll get more back. He was shocked to to, to uh, have that pointed out to him because he didn't realize that he was alienating those guys. And so he, he did try that for the next couple of races and it did work for him and his times did improve and the guys became much more fond of him. So that kind of chemistry and dynamic is, I think is really important, but um, you know, I, I've, I've never told that story, but, uh, but that's the kind of story that I would, you know, like to tell one day if I ever get pen to paper. Unfortunately, no amount of, uh, friendliness with the Ferrari mechanics were going to get him the pit stop he needed in, I think it was Japan, when they just decided not to put the wheel on the car and uh, it completely ruined his chance of being world champion. Well, there was a very good reason for that. There was a guy on the other side of the garage called Michael Schumacher, who was the golden boy and who'd missed, I think he missed six races. He had a shunt at Silverstone where he he broke his leg. Eddie was took over the leadership of the team and actually was, you know, had every chance of winning that world title. But as you quite rightly say, Craig, one of the biggest mishaps in uh, in pit lane history, I would say, when um, when they brought three tyres out when four were needed, cost Eddie the race, and ultimately, I'd say cost cost Eddie the world championship. Although I think. Ferrari being Ferrari, had they got to the to the um, pointy end of the season and there were only a few points in it, I think Eddie might have had a mysterious engine let go or, or some such. What's interesting is you had that period of time where you were trying to uncover the stories and tell the stories. For us in the media, we like to joke that uh, when you become a communications director, you're trying to make sure we don't tell that story to try and get us to tell the one we you want us to tell us. But then you made the move through a few years later to the FIA, which uh, you would have spent all that time at Jaguar and, and, and Stuart Grand Prix learning about that evil beast that controls uh, controls the rules and regulations, and you joined the animal. <laughs> yes, yeah, I did. Um, 
Yeah, that was an interesting time and an interesting transition. And you're quite right. I, I went from uh, poacher turned gamekeeper from journalism to the other side of the fence to you know PR and comms, and then uh, I guess the uh, to to take that one step further to go to the FIA, the governing body, where you know type of PR you do is largely corporate communications and reputation management. It was interesting. It was uh, a little claustrophobic for my liking, if I'm being brutally honest, in some regard. And there was a lot of reputation management involved in, in that role. But, you know, on the flip side, I do understand that each and every sport, whether that's um, cricket or, or golf or motorsport, you know, they have to have a governing body. And quite often those governing bodies are not the most, um, they're not on everybody's Christmas list, put it that way. But they have a job to do. Um, and if they if those people weren't there doing that job, then, um, you know, there'd be chaos. You could argue there is still chaos right now in Formula One. But, um, you know, I, I respect the job they do. Uh, I don't always agree with the decisions they make. I don't always agree with um, some of their communication practices. But, you know, they do things in their way, in their time. So, yeah, it was it was a challenging time, an interesting time. I learned a lot. I think I've learned every, you know, everywhere I've gone. Um, so it, it was a different type of learning. Uh, I, I learned to understand how regulatory bodies um, deal with a multitude of stakeholders. So that was a that was a good learning for me. That's all we have time for this week on Inside Motorsport. We continue next week with Cameron Kelleher. I hope you can join us then. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.